Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. Welcome back, everybody. We have Tina Mary, and this talk is how to lead a cross-cultural team. It's going to be super interesting, super interesting. So, Tina, take it away. Thank you so much. Let's go ahead and take a look at the uh, the deck. I'm really appreciating everyone joining me. I want to thank you so much also to the Powell Group and Tripwire and Jay and everybody for hosting. Um, as the title implies, you know, we're going to focus mostly on a on what how what it takes to effectively lead across cultures but this content is really going to be relevant to anyone working in a culturally diverse context and honestly that's everyone working in the games industry isn't it because cultural diversity is a very broad concept it goes beyond nationality or ethnicity or where we were born or live it includes things like different age groups or genders gender identities even functional roles within this studio and, and business, right? Artists versus engineers versus producers. Um, we can see studio cultures, family cultures, and so on. So my role here is really to help you foster cultural inclusion in whatever role you might hold, even if you're not in a formal leadership role. We're trying to build a mindset and an opportunity and an approach where we can celebrate this diversity of this industry and help everyone thrive and succeed. Um, a couple of quick housekeeping items. We are going to have time for questions at the end and feedback. I appreciate and love reading the comments that might come along the way. I won't be reading them as we go, but I hope that you'll add some observations and your stories and questions in the chat, and then we'll look at them at the end. I really want to make this content as practical and relevant for each of you as possible. Um, okay, so just a very quick little bit about me today. Um, my work focuses on business consulting, coaching, and training and facilitation. I specialize in cultural inclusion, but I shipped over 50, uh, 25 AAA games over a 15-year period in games. I understand what it means to be in the trenches, and in the last five years, I've had an opportunity to also work more closely with the indie space. Um, I had the chance to head up key franchises like FIFA and Need for Speed, and the very first game that I shipped was Marvel Nemesis Rise of the Imperfects for the PlayStation Portable, and that was back in 2005. Um, today, I live in a small town called Asoyos. It's in British Columbia, Canada, and my favorite hobbies are gardening and reading. So let's take a quick look at what we're gonna cover today. Um, first, I wanna tell a short story about a wonderful project that I worked on, FIFA Street. It was over a decade ago, but it really sets the stage um, for our conversation and it helps you understand how I moved into the kind of work that I do today. That's going to take us to my big aha moment when I really started to understand what does it mean to be culturally inclusive? How can I use that to help myself and my teams be successful? But we're going to spend most of our time on the last two topics, cultural values and putting it together. In cultural values, we're going to explore the impact they have on bias and inclusion. Cultural values are a way to describe our preferred ways of working and relating to each other. We're going to dig into them quite deeply. We're going to see how they can be useful for understanding behaviors different than our own and even understanding ourselves better. And in putting it all together, I want to make things, again, very practical and very specific for you. How can you help? 
your teams be more successful? How can you lead more effectively across cultures? How can you grow your own cultural intelligence? So let's start with that story. Once upon a time, there was a project that allowed me to feel pride on a whole bunch of different levels. On one level, there was this idea that Messi was going to be on the cover because he had not been on one of our game titles at Electronic Arts until this title. And I was a massive fan of Messi. I'd been following him since he was a young phenom playing on Barcelona with Ronaldinho. Um, so that was pretty fun to see him get to be on the title of uh, on the on the front of our our game. But more important to this audience, I guess, is that this was the project that really accelerated my understanding of how we needed to be effective and think about working across cultures. My world bubble popped and a lot of things changed for me. It was a new view of the world. So here's sort of what happened. I was partnered with three other leaders to build a game. The game we were expected to build was going to be done in 18 months and it was supposed to be a one-off title. In other words, it wasn't iterative. They were expecting a brand new experience from the FIFA Street franchise. Because it was gonna be a one-off title, they gave us constraints. And the biggest constraint they gave us was, you only have 20 people to build this game. Here's some money, go find some external partners. So we did. We went and built a wonderful global team. They were highly diverse, highly talented. We were working with up to six different countries at any one time. But the problem was we started to develop blocks and challenges related to communications and how the work was getting done, how we could set expectations for each other and so on. I then had the blessing of learning about somebody named Gert Hofstede, one of the engineers on my team, Jana Patterson, a very talented engineer at EA, told me about Gert Hofstede. And he's a Dutch psychologist who actually did a lot of work around intercultural studies. He created a framework that helped me understand a lot of the different behaviors I was seeing in my Eastern European teams versus my North American teams and so on. So we use this information to help our team have rich conversations about those differences and how we could break down some of the cultural barriers we were seeing to be more effective. In the following five years, I kept building that subject matter expertise. I became known at Electronic Arts as a subject matter expert in distributed development and cultural inclusion. I had the opportunity to deliver talks at conferences and help do team training. And the more time I spent developing myself in this area, the wider my idea and perception of what cultural diversity meant. I've talked about it at the beginning. It started to move beyond diversity of different countries and I started seeing the diversity on my own team in Vancouver. But there was one thing that was really troubling me about this body of information, and that was, it was very focused on cultural knowledge and awareness. So I was motivated, I was aware, but my team and I didn't know always what to do with this information. How do we translate it into something practical? And it wasn't until I was working with King Activision in 2018 that I learned about the cultural intelligence framework. CQ answered those questions for me about how we could turn motivation and knowledge into something else. So let's get to this definition of cultural intelligence. I keep talking about it. Cultural intelligence is a skill that we can measure. It relates to our ability to work and relate effectively with people that are different than ourselves. In other words, to be effective in a cross-cultural context. I learned about it being based on over two decades of academic research. And for anyone interested in that research and the science behind it, please reach out. I'm happy to let you know more about it. It has predictive outcomes. And as I said, we can measure it and we can improve it. It's really, really important. CQ is the foundation and the strategic link we need to be effective as cross-cultural leaders and build an inclusive environment where everybody can thrive. Now, before we keep going and look deeper into that CQ framework, I want to address this question. Does emotional intelligence equal cultural intelligence? Because I'm often asked this. Pardon me. <clears throat> now, 
cultural intelligence does stem from the same body of research as emotional intelligence. They, they're both forms of intelligence that impact how effectively we can work and relate to other people. With high EQ, high emotional intelligence, we notice our own emotions. We can recognize when we feel sad or angry or stressed. We can notice and detect the emotions of others and interpret them, understand when somebody's angry, we might feel empathetic for them. We're able to regulate our own emotions. So even if we're angry or stressed, we may not lose our temper or get burnt out. And we can direct those emotions towards positive goals. So all those things are high emotional intelligence. The challenge with CQ is that we're now wanting to understand emotions across culture. Cultural intelligence takes us to that next step because it gives us those same kinds of sensibilities working with somebody different than us when they have behaviors that we're not expecting. So for example, giggles might mean laughter in one culture, but in another culture, it means they're embarrassed. <clears throat> Some individuals have been socialized to express anger by yelling and being very emotive. And in another culture, we're expected to simmer in silence. So in all these different ways, we can see that cultural intelligence is picking up where EQ leaves off when we're working and relating and understanding emotions across cultures. And now let's get more deeply into understanding what cultural intelligence is, because this is where my big aha moment came from. I'm motivated and I'm aware I had motivation and cognition, but what could I do about it? So CQ drive re represents motivation. People with high CQ drive are motivated and adapt well to working with new cultures. They are persistent and they are confident and they enjoy it. They understand the benefits behind it. As leaders, we might reflect on motivations when we're thinking about putting people on new projects. Do they enjoy working on new things with new things and new people? CQ knowledge is our awareness of how cultures are similar and different. How do they show up in this? Does this show up in the rules and the behaviors of the workplace and the people that we work with? How do they perceive authority? How do they perceive time? How do decisions get made? There's a really strong impact on things like talent management when it comes to CQ knowledge, and we'll be exploring that later. CQ strategy is where CQ, the cultural intelligence framework or the CQ framework truly differentiated itself from other cultural training I had received because now we're moving into metacognition. We're planning for the cultural interaction. We're showing awareness in the moment and we're checking our assumptions afterwards. Were the things that I perceived to be true about that culture group I was gonna be working with actually true? And then that brings me to CQ action. CQ action is about behaving differently. It's our ability to adapt when working and relating to somebody different than ourselves, showing up differently as a leader, for example. It's also the capability that's most visible to others because of that fact that we're adapting to a different way of working and relating or behaving. Together, all four of these capabilities are gonna help you effectively lead a culturally diverse team and set them up for success. And again, we will go back to this framework a little bit later and explore how you can apply them and how you can develop them. Now we're gonna move into that cultural values piece. It's This is the piece that I, I mentioned that works on CQ knowledge or cognition. It's building our cultural awareness. Cultural and values influence the way we communicate, plan, and execute our work. They help us interpret and describe how we prefer working with others. And they are rooted in our lifetime of experiences. They come from our early childhood years and the things that happen in our young adult lives. That's where most of the influence comes from. The source of our cultural values, though, to be honest, is really not that important. What's more important is understanding what to do about it, how they impact the way you view and see the world around you. So let's go to this image here, the fish in the bowl. A fish's view of its world is distorted when it's in a bowl by the bowl itself and the water that surrounds it. 
when we scoop that fish from one bowl into another bowl, its view looks very different. For us as human beings, the distorting elements that we have are our cultural values the, and the personal values through which we see the world and the people in it. So learning about cultural values helps us examine our own assumptions and biases and help reduce the, mitigate the impact that that distortion may have. Let's talk about assumptions for a minute. What assumptions do we make in our daily lives with others? What biases show up and what's the impact of them? How does culture come into the equation? How do you attribute behaviors different to uh, your own? When how, do we, how, how often do you attribute to them to the personality versus culture? So for example, when you saw your colleague nodding in the meeting, what did you assume that nod meant? Did you think it conveyed agreement understanding of what you were saying, or both, or maybe neither. If a subordinate, somebody you were talking to on your team and giving feedback to didn't ask you any questions, what would you infer? And would that be true for every team member that you spoke to? Culturally intelligent and inclusive behavior encourages us and requires that we suspend judgment before acting on the assumptions that we might have. Because here's the thing, respect is cultural. The way in which we perceive good manners and seek to demonstrate respectful behaviors to others is based on our cultural expectations. A simple example of this, my husband thinks this is a pretty funny one, is slurping rude behavior. My husband thinks it's the absolute height of rude behavior, but in some parts of the world, it's a compliment to the food preparer. Respectful behaviors might also differ based on who sits in the meeting, who speaks first, whether it's appropriate to question your boss, and how we address conflict. It might even show up in how we sh whether we arrive to meetings on time. For some, respect is shown by not interrupting my current conversation, even if it means going to that next meeting late taking a few more minutes to allow that current conversation to end naturally is what's seen as respectful. So now I have a quick question for the audience and I kind of hope everyone's going to interact and respond through chat, but if not, just at least think about it. So you have a friend and they tell you, they ask you what you think about a color of a wall that they just painted. They're trying to decide whether to color all the walls in the house that same color. You think the color is absolutely hideous. If you're the kind of person that would be really direct and just say, oh my goodness, that's really ugly. Go ahead and say direct, type direct in the chat. On the other hand, if you would probably be a little bit more roundabout in your feedback and maybe not, maybe not quite so brutal, Type the word indirect. Okay, now here's part two of my question. Would you change the answer if the person you were giving feedback to was your sibling, a, a brother or sister, or a very close friend, your best friend? In other words, would you provide feedback differently based on the person that was asking you this question? For those of you who chose to behave differently, that can be an example of cultural intelligence in action. We're situationally deciding which way is the most effective to give that person feedback. Taking this idea of respect a little further, I want us to think about this concept of the golden rule. The golden rule comes in, it comes from many different cultures and, the, and it comes in very different, various flavors, but it effectively says, treat others the way we want to be treated. Do unto others as we would have them do unto us. There's a really big problem with this though. This assumes we all wanna be treated the same. And that's not necessarily true, is it? So the platinum rule suggests we treat others how they want to be treated. 
allowing us to better demonstrate respect and empathy. So now what I wanna do is dig into some of the cultural values that can impact our perception of respectful and expected behaviors and the way that we work and relate to each other. We're gonna look at 10 different cultural values now. The first cultural value is context. Now, one other point I wanna make before I go through each of these cultural values is there's a spectrum where you might find yourself. And you might find yourself even somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, which doesn't necessarily make you more adaptable. It's just where you are. There's no right place to be on that spectrum is my point. Your goal is to understand where are you on the spectrum and if you were relating with somebody different than you on that spectrum, how might that show up for you? What might you need to think about or do differently to navigate that difference? So with that context in mind, let's look at context. Context is a cultural value that can create a lot of challenges on diverse teams, a lot of conflict. It is the extent to which we prefer to communicate communications that are very explicit, direct and clear versus communications that are more indirect with an emphasis on harmony and saving face. So in a low context culture, words are meant to convey our message. We have things, sayings like, say what you mean, mean what you say. In a high context culture, there's an assumption of some shared understanding usually. We see more attention being paid to how things are said, what's not said who's saying it, and body language, and so on. We can see cultural bias showing up here. As somebody who's very low context, I can be impatient with somebody who's high context and not focusing on getting their point across concisely and clearly. And I might say to them, can you please be more specific? Somebody, on the other hand, who is high context might be really working hard to pay attention to my tone of voice and what I'm not saying. They might say something like, let me think about that when asked a direct question. So if you're working with somebody at the opposite end of the spectrum, just consider this. You know, Again, if they're low context, try to be more direct and explicit. Focus on getting your message across as quickly as possible. If you're working with someone who's more high context than you, remember the importance of silence and reflection. Power distance. This is a cultural value that reflects on how we think about authority. In a low power distance culture, there's a preference towards a flat, egalitarian approach to leadership with more emphasis on equality and shared decision making. But in a high power distance culture, we're seeing a more top down hierarchical style. The boss is the boss. The boss is right. And she'll know what we should do. But when and how should we accommodate? these different preferences. For me, one of the remote external partner teams on FIFA Street, I found really wanted me to be a strong leader. This was one of the first times I saw a big difference across cultures. They wanted a different approach for me. They wanted clear and specific guidance. They wanted me to have smart answers to the questions they might have. But the core team in Vancouver, they were preferring me to behave more like a peer for them. They wanted me to ask uh, to ask them smart questions. They wanted more of a voice in how the work should be getting done. We can see this uh, value preference showing up in a meeting. Who's willing to ask the tough questions in the room? Um, who's tending to be more silent and wait? Who will disagree with somebody more senior? Reflect on this as leaders when you're planning for how voices will be heard in a meeting. How can you get them heard if they're speaking up, um, get all voices heard if somebody's afraid of speaking up? And we're going to explore this concept more in the topic of leadership. But here's a few specific tips for yourself. If you're leading a team that's more low power distance than yourself, seek to try and forego some of the formalities you like to make used to. Create more ways for the team to question or challenge your authority where possible. And when leading a team that's more high power distance, remember they would like a clear chain of command. They will not question authority publicly. 
They like well-defined protocols and processes. Individualism versus collectivism. This is the extent to which we think of ourselves primarily as an individual or a tight family unit versus the member of a specific group, like a work group or your community or the broader country as an example. Individualists tend to be more motivated by personal goals and achievements. They like working alone. They're more comfortable with the responsibility that comes with autonomous work. And for them, the transactions and the outcomes of the work might be more important than how the work is done. So the individualists might appreciate things as well, like getting a shout out or public praise in front of the team. The collectivist prefers a focus on group goals. For them, longer term relationships are very important. Personal connections are critical. Collectivists probably won't like to be recognized individually in front of the team. They'd rather you acknowledge the team effort than the individual effort. Think about these preferences when you're assigning work and setting goals. The team in Vancouver did better with individual bug fixing targets. The team in Eastern Europe did better with group goals where they were working together on team goals. Be careful about bias in hiring decisions. If you're very much an individualist and you're listening to a candidate talk about the work they did in the context of the team, and they speak a lot about what we did, you may be wondering what they achieved on their own. Conversely, if you're a collectivist and you hear somebody who's really good at describing their achievements and their accomplishments, you might wonder whether there's going to be good chemistry with that team. How well are they going to fit in with the group? To mitigate these kinds of biases, consider having a variety of individuals involved in your hiring committee and make sure that hiring committee is applying a consistent set of defined standards for each candidate that's interviewed. <clears throat> Next, we're gonna to move to uncertainty avoidance. This is the extent we prefer to be flexible and adapt to changing circumstances. <clears throat> versus reducing or avoiding uncertainty. So it shows up in things like how we make decisions and finalize them, or even if the decision should be made in the first place. It's relevant to how planning and risk management are handled. It's, it, it's relevant to the importance of having plan A, plan B, plan C, versus the desire to iterate and be flexible. And again, this is a value that can create a lot of conflict in your diverse teams so for me, I saw a conflict, for example, between the engineers who thought the best way to clarify the code and the game design was to actually go ahead and rapidly prototype in code. We had other engineers and project leaders and technical leaders who felt, no, 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 we need to do more planning. We need more clarity on what we're doing. So I wanna see more of a technical plan and a risk before you write a lot of code. We might know this preference by hearing people say things like, I love a new challenge versus, are we sure this is gonna work? Challenge your assumptions. Be careful that you don't see your low uncertainty avoidance teammates as being too willing to take risk or your high uncertainty avoidance teammates as being rigid and inflexible and unwilling to innovate. Reflect on your leadership style ask again whether you should be adapting them. For somebody that's low uncertainty avoidance, strive as a leader to invite them to explore solutions where it's possible. And for somebody with high uncertainty avoidance, again, go back to similar to the power distance recommendation, explicit instructions, formalized procedures and policies will be appreciated. Being versus doing. This is an interesting one. It's the extent to which we prefer quality of life, versus proactively working towards goals. So it's not about work-life balance so much as where we derive our energy. Being will enjoy a lack of doing things and just experiencing the moment. But a doing person will be more engaged in reaching certain goals, whether for business or pleasure. And this describes me very well. I love lists and I love getting things done. In the workplace, we can sometimes have a bias related to this value preference. As a doer, I might perceive others different from me as being maybe even a bit lazy 
they might feel I'm a workaholic who doesn't know how to have fun. We can detect these preferences in the way team members approach their work and talk about their personal lives. A doing person will have an emphasis on getting things done and say, we have so much planned for our holiday, I can't wait. The being person may have more of a focus on relationship versus tasks. And they're gonna say things like, I love a holiday with nothing scheduled. When you're working with somebody who's being oriented as a leader, really seek to affirm them as a person, not just their performance. Seek to really manage the relationship, in other words. When you're working with someone who you know is more doing oriented, remember to affirm their accomplishments and their new opportunities. Manage the process of the relationship. Are you looking for a publisher for your game? Well, we have something special just for you. It's the most comprehensive listing of PC, console, and mobile publishers in the industry. Over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites. You can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list. And you can get it for free. Check it out. Okay, and now we're on to expressiveness. Expressiveness is the extent to which we prefer to hide our emotions versus showing them. If we're a neutral mindset, we're more focused on emphasis on non-emotional communications and hiding our feelings. For an effective person, the emphasis is on expressive communications and sharing our feelings. And this is the tough one for me. I'm a terrible poker player. I have to work really hard to hide my feelings when the occasion calls for it. For example, when I lived in Sweden. There's also an interesting difference I've seen in a leadership context. Many North American leaders are taught to show enthusiasm and charisma when they're communicating, but the European leaders might be encouraged to curb that a little bit or they're not gonna be taken very seriously. We can see credibility in the workplace eroded. We might hear things like, oh, you're so emotional or, did you see the look on their face? I don't think they cared what I had to say at all. I have at times been accused of lacking composure because I am emotive. So as a leader, be careful how your assumptions and own preferences might impact your judgments of others. If you're working with someone more expressive than yourself, you might wanna try and be a little bit more warm in your communication style. If you're working with someone more neutral, you're gonna try and manage your emotional expressiveness and your body language. You're gonna to stick to the point more in meetings and interactions. <clears throat> Cooperative versus a competitive. This cultural value is about where we, how we prefer to achieve our results. Both, both uh, types of um, preference are focused on getting results done. They just might have a different idea of the most effective way to do it. <clears throat> so somebody who is very competitive is going to focus on competition, assertiveness, and achievement and getting things done. We might perceive them to be a bit combative. Somebody who's more cooperative is going to put an emphasis on collaboration, nurturing, and family. We might perceive them as being more weak. I saw this difference when I lived and worked in Sweden for 15 months. The Nordic cultures tended towards cooperation and consensus. I heard managers say things like, I feel like our teams have good chemistry. In North America, there tended to be more of a competitive mindset. Teams emphasized achievement and taking care of tasks as the priority. I hear things like, we need to be responsible for our own destiny, or I'm sure we can win this, we're the best. Again, think about this in terms of how decisions are made and the work is being handed up. Monochronic versus polychronic. This is the extent to which we prefer to do one things at a time, monochronic or linear fashion, versus multitasking or a nonlinear approach. With a linear or monochronic value, there's a preference again to do one thing at a time, 
The order in which the tasks and work's being done is quite important. And home and work life are often kept very separate. With the polychronic, there's a preference to multitask. That's me. And the order in which tasks are completed is generally not so important. The polychronic won't mind interruptions and will, won't, won't mind the blending of personal and work lives. It might show up in meetings. Who's going ahead and glancing at their phone in the meeting? Who's kind of hiding it under the table thinking not appropriate to do two things at once? The culture at EA was definitely polychronic. We saw every meeting starting at least five minutes late because the culture was such that it was important to finish the last conversation before we moved on to the next one. If you're working with somebody who's monochronic and you're not, and a deadline can't be met, be sure to propose an alternative and stick to it. If you're working with someone who's polychronic, do seek ways to find um, opportunities to be flexible on deadlines that are, might be less important. Universalism versus particularism. This is the extent to which we prefer to apply the same standards versus everyone for everyone versus making exceptions, for example, for friends and family or special circumstances. We see this in an organizational culture in a, in a very universalist culture, there are very established and formal policies to address things like time off, extensions to work, school and business. Probably in the indie side of the business, we're going to see more particularism, a case-by-case -case basis applying unique standards to specific circumstances. Your universalist might perceive this approach as showing favoritism, though. As a leader, when you're working with team members who prefer particularism, do try to look for flexibility where possible and invest in the relationships. Show the, con the role of context in making decisions on how things are getting done. If you're working with someone who's a universalist, give commitments in writing when possible, stick to them. If you do need to change a decision or a timeline, give as much rationale as possible and advance warning. And that brings us to our last or 10th cultural value, time orientation. This is not about punctuality. It's about the extent to which we prefer to focus on immediate near-term results versus results that can come many years later or years later. I had this uh, observation shared to me, US public companies, leaders tend to focus very much on quarterly results and, and demonstrating good returns for shareholders. Conversely, Sony Japan, has a 100-year strategic plan. We can see conflicts relating to this value difference showing up between, for example, studio leaders who are concerned about the overall business plan and the project, the macro view, versus the team who needs to focus on this current sprint and milestone. What are we doing today and tomorrow? If you're working with someone with a short-term outlook preference, remember to prioritize what were the quick wins Focus on present implications of the work. For someone with a longer term outlook, you're gonna think about helping them understand why today's investment helps us in the future. Invest in longer term implications. A specific example of this are the conversations you probably have on your team at the start of every project cycle, if you're working on an iterative title that is, where you talk about code debt, how much time should we invest in code debt. So what do we learn about cultural values? It's important to understand these are simply a reference point for understanding behaviors different than our own. They'll help us describe how we can get things done and understand how we might have biases towards others who are different than ourselves and the impact that that might have. But our cultural values have nothing to do with our ability to work and relate effectively with others. That's cultural intelligence. Learning about cultural values is fun, it's interesting, it's insightful, but it's got little value to us unless we have the skills to apply it when we're working to something different. So now let's get specific and put it all together. Let's make this stuff actionable for you all. First, I promise to recap the four capabilities that we need 
to relate and work effectively with somebody from a different cultural background. So CQ Drive, recall that represented our motivation, measuring confidence, persistence, and interest working across cultures. CQ Knowledge is about our cognition, our awareness of how cultures are similar and different and how it influences the way people think and behave. This was all about the cultural value preferences we were exploring. Strategy, metacognition. CQ strategy measures our awareness and our, uh, our ability to plan for our cross-cultural interactions. CQ action is about our behaviors, our ability to adapt when working or relating to a different culture or leading across different cultures. So now let's go into some specific examples of how I've both applied and improved or developed each of these four capabilities. So since CQ Drive is about motivation, one of the things I did to build my own motivation and that of my team was I started talking with them. I shared my experiences and my cross-cultural stories with them. We also brainstormed as a team around the benefits of having a culturally diverse team. We wanted to build our extrin extrinsic interest and from that our motivations. And as a leader, I applied CQ Drive when I made sure to assign individuals who had the right skills, mindset, and motivation to work effectively with external partners. Doing this helped the entire team with our confidence and our self-efficacy in building the game. CQ Knowledge. This industry is full of acronyms and language specific to the world of games and games development. So what our team did was we created a glossary of terms and we shared it with our remote teams who also contributed. We included colloquial terms from our local regions, Canadian, Vancouver-based, West Coast, and team-specific terms. The FIFA team had different acronyms and terms versus the NHL team. We also looked at what the different terms and standard common phrases were used across the different functional roles, like artists versus engineers. We researched and discussed what does it mean to be a leader in a global context? How does somebody from Canada versus somebody from Romania or Argentina prefer to be led? What traits do they seek from their leadership team? We also did a cultural value mapping exercise. We explored our team cultural values. We talked about how they were impacting the way we collaborated and worked together. That brings me to CQ strategy. CQ strategy was about me helping the team examine our systems and processes. I wanted to try and be specific about how the work would be done. I would build roles and responsibilities, RACI charts. We clarified escalation paths. How would decisions be made? Who would be making them? Why would they be made? When would we escalate? This was the planning part. Being more intentional about it helped me reduce confusion and let the team focus on getting all voices heard in the moment, which was our awareness piece, such as in brainstorming or risk planning. And since some team members preferred to collaborate as collectivists, the other kind of planning I did was I invited the team to set up small groups to explore a given topic and then come back later as a mini team with a recommendation to the larger group. It created a safer place for them to explore that topic. <laughs> Excuse me. And with many game teams, it was also typical for us to conduct retrospectives. So that allowed us again to check our assumptions related to planning. For CQ action, we need to get out of our comfort zone. And this is very much true for me. We have to try new things if we're going to behave differently. It's easy to fall into our default patterns of behavior. So for me, an example would be being less direct as well as being less emotive, composure and body language. So living in Sweden for 15 months was a really good push to remind me that being very expressive and outgoing was not going to be well received by everyone. It didn't make everyone comfortable. CQ action is also about applying different leadership styles to be most effective. 
including things like delivering feedback differently and finding the courage to speak up as an ally or in a champion for somebody when they need it. One action I took was getting a culture coach, somebody who could help me know if I was falling into bad default behaviors that were less effective. This person also is somebody who can help you practice a difficult conversation you need to have or refine your approach to delivering an ought to a different audience. For example, maybe you have a pitch that you've delivered to a publisher and now you're going to go deliver it to a different audience, an investment uh, firm or somebody else. How will your presentation vary? How will your approach to that presentation vary? Now, I want to share again some more specific examples of cultural intelligence and in practice. How do we apply it, for example, to onboarding new team members, whether we're doing it physically in the same office or is very prevalent today in the games industry, bringing on somebody remotely. We want our new team members to quickly adapt to our team culture, learn the accepted and familiar ways of doing things. And if I have high CQ, I'm more likely to adapt to my team. As a culturally intelligent leader, I'm going to help with onboarding new team members um, because by helping them learn about the culture of our team. So one way I do that is we assign a culture buddy. For the first 90 days, that person answers all their questions about how to navigate the team dynamics. The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to build an onboarding one-on-one uh, -on -one schedule or have the new hire do this where they're meeting with a diverse cast of characters from across the game project team. This will help them again learn more about the game, get knowledge transfer from various cultural perspectives and help them quickly acquire the cultural knowledge they need to settle into the new team. Another obvious area where CQ can apply is our communications. What did you say? What did you not say? Did I hear what I think you said? High cultural intelligence teams go back to those clearly defined processes I mentioned earlier. So for example, how is information shared? What does a good status report look like? Who receives it when and why? We find ways to check our assumptions. The biggest tip I can offer you related to communications and meetings is make sure you communicate a clearly defined agenda in advance. You want to invite questions and feedback before the meeting even happens. Culturally intelligent teams also give means again for those quieter voices to be heard. We talked about an example earlier with the collectivist approach to brainstorming. The overarching principle to applying CQ to your communications is explicit as possible in how and why things are being done a certain way. In other words, again, into the what good looks like. Which reminds me, performance management, again, it's all about what good looks like. We talked about an example here earlier. Is it more effective to give feedback directly or indirectly? That's cultural intelligence in action. One of my external partner teams was really struggling with very direct feedback they were receiving from a Canadian engineer. Once we softened the approach to the feedback they were receiving, that team understood what they were doing really well and their performance accelerated. A culturally intelligent leader can also reflect on how does cultural differences affect our perceptions of what good does look like. On the FIFA Street project, we had our external partner rank all of their team members. We did the same thing. When we compared notes, we realized we weren't aligned. For example, the communication uh, uh, for communications, one of the engineers was rated quite low and our external partner rated them high. We said, but why? We never hear them calling out risks and they rarely interact with others in a group setting. The partner explained, well, actually they complete their status report on time every week. So we realized we needed to talk about what it meant to be a strong communicator. We needed to define what good looked like. So we've talked about leading across cultures. CQ is what's going to give you the skills and confidence to lead effectively across cultures. 
What do we mean by that, though? What do we mean by inclusive leadership and effective leadership? For me, this is about creating safe places where judgments are suspended. It's about fostering a team culture where everybody can do their best. It's about me being aware and curious and courageous and being a little bit vulnerable, too. It's about a commitment to my team. And for many, especially me, and for many others, I think it's getting out of a comfort zone. That's because high CQ leaders, sorry, are situationally able to foster innovation and inspire a diverse workforce. As we seek to lead with inclusion across cultures, we need to combine the concept of situational leadership with cultural intelligence. Situational leadership is adapting our leadership style based on the needs of the individual and the tasks being assigned in the situation. For example, a senior engineer on the team might need something different from their tech leader than a junior. When I combine this concept with culturally intelligent leadership, I'm more effective. I'm able to adapt the specific cultural needs of the situation and the individual. The ideas we're combining an awareness of the task and the work with the cultural nuances of the situation, the team, and the individual. Let me explain a little bit for you. Sorry, I'm going too fast here. Your preferred leadership style stems from your own life experiences and cultural values, but an effective and inclusive leader can flex between these styles. And here's four common examples we see on the screen. A directive leader really clearly defines what's expected, tells the team how to do their tasks, and it in theory has the most positive effect when the role and the demands are somewhat ambiguous and already pretty intrinsically satisfying. It's also gonna be most effective if individuals are high power distance, high uncertainty avoidance and collectivist. The supportive leader, this tends to be my default style. The main role of this leader is to be emotionally and psychologically in tune with the needs of their team. It's very effective when we've got tasks that are very physically or emotionally distressing or also quite mundane and boring. It also might be the better approach for a team that has high uncertainty avoidance or cooperative mindsets. Participative leaders want to collaborate with the followers and encourage them to get involved in the decision making. This is low power distance and cooperative. And our achievement oriented leader, they set challenging goals for followers. They want the team to know they expect to perform at their highest level and have confidence in their ability to meet that expectation. This really lends itself well to teams that are more low power distance or competitive. So the core principle here, you're adapting how you lead to be more effective. When I was working with the team in Eastern Europe, my supportive leadership style was simply not effective. They wanted and needed a directive style. Conversely, the team in Vancouver, they wanted an achievement-focused style. So in both cases, I needed to flex my leadership to be more effective outside of my standard. So it's almost time for Q&A. Things that you can do to improve inclusion. Align expectations with your team. Explore those cultural differences. Have rich conversations about how they're showing up. Be explicit in how the work is being done. And seek to celebrate and draw upon your diversity. Don't tolerate it. Look for those, that as a catalyst for innovation. My key takeaway points for you today, you can develop these skills. They can be, you can grow them. Not The second key takeaway is remember, not everyone wants to be treated the same. Don't forget the platinum rule. And finally, remember that leading with inclusion is what's going to help you truly leverage the diversity of your team. There's a reason you're doing this. It will help your bottom line. It will help everyone succeed and grow more effectively. Remember, when we strive to come better than we are, everyone around us becomes better too. 
This is a beautiful quote I loved from Paolo Coelho. Thank you so much. I welcome your questions. And if we don't have time or you prefer to, please feel free to reach out privately. Thank you again. That was awesome. Thank you, Gina. And I want to give you a special shout out for stepping in and doing this with like 24 hours notice because we had <laughs> another speaker with a family emergency come up and we had one of those, oh my God, now what? And you stepped in very quickly and I highly appreciate that. And this is fantastic because this is the type of stuff that a lot of people don't think about when we're near running a company. And I've certainly had to think about it as we've grown from, you know, pretty much a local if not just us based group into now we've got team members on two other continents so it's always good to make sure i'm not completely screwing this up as well so um <laughs> with that the first question we've got time for maybe two of these sure um, first one up how do these strategies change when you're in an office environment versus a remote team Oh, yeah, they are, I like that question. They don't really change. I say, would they be even more critical for a remote team? No, because the challenge we have with a remote team is, again, some of the assumptions we're making are greater, right? We can't see the person's face. We can't observe body language. Some of the cultural nuances we might detect in the office, the water cooler conversations we might have, we don't have the opportunity to have them. So if anything, I would say everything that I had to say is hyper more important in a remote context than in an in-office. Awesome. No pressure. Got it. Um, (laughs) Because it is. And and when you're working with a remote team, you do have, and I am not the best at this, and everyone on my team will back me up on this. I'm not the best at seeing social cues and thinking, and I'll be like going down one path and my wife will say, um, yeah, that's not what they said. I'm like, oh, I, I knew that. So it is. It, it's very important, and it's it is tougher when you're in that situation as well. Um, at what point you were talking about having a hiring team, especially indie devs, they're doing good to have somebody who's doing yeah. hiring in the first place. How should they, you know, approach this with limited resources yeah. when they don't have the ability to put a hiring team together? Yeah, it's a great point. First thing I would do with a small um, indie studio is I would make sure everybody had the benefit of some form of interview training and I would get the entire team involved. So the entire studio becomes the interviewing hiring committee. I mean, again, I'm assuming there's under 10 people or five people. You don't want to you don't want to have your candidates interviewed 10 times. So you might have you might rotate how many people are involved but I'd get everybody involved. I'd go through some base training, even if it's just using some of the free online training that's available through LinkedIn learning and and YouTube and so on. So everybody's starting with a baseline. And then I would work again as a group to define the metrics for success. Who do we want on our team? How will we know when we hear good answers? You wanna remove bias ahead of time from what you wanting to hear. And then just try and get as many people involved as possible. If you have to, you could also seek to um, engage with other, you know, studios that maybe you do work with and maybe ask if they wouldn't mind helping you and you can help them. Um, so, again, and maybe it's a, at a community focused effort where you help other other indie studios do their hire and you and they help you with yours. Um, the point is diverse perspectives. Number one and number two, clearly define what you're looking for in advance. What does a good answer look like? What are we looking for? What is the experience? And ask, answer all those questions before you get in the room for the interview. All right, last question. And because this was a phrase slash role slash job I am not familiar with. When you were over in Sweden, where did you go about finding a cultural coach? Uh-huh. That's a, I've never heard of that. And, I, and it's like, I immediately see the value, but where do you go to find one? Um, well, there are people who do the type of work I do. So cross-cultural um, coaching and where I'm specifically working with individuals to help them be more effective. But that's more of, on cultural intelligence and global cultures. In the case of Sweden, it was a local friend. It was a colleague who I said, can you please be my culture coach? So it's probably needs to be somebody who you work with or interact with enough to be able to see you in the moment. 
It's not yet now you could formalize this again with a, a true coach, which is, for example, and that's part of my consulting work. I, I coach people and I teach them how to navigate cultures and they bring their challenges and we work through them together. And then they go away and try and apply what I've taught them. So there's both ways that you can use a culture coach. One is that more formal or more informal, which is the more informal was the one I was referring to. That's the person who's there on the team to catch how you dealt with that meeting. That is awesome. And so for everybody out there, um, one, do not come to me to ask me to be your cultural coach. I guarantee <laughs> you, you will not like the results. Um, thank you so much, Tina. We've got any other questions, pop them over to the Discord. We're going to, we've got two sessions left today. Uh, next one up is something I think all of us in the industry can relate to at one point or another. Uh, Cassie is going to be discussing, I got a job in the game industry with no prior experience and you can too. Um, <laughs> thank you, Tina. We'll thank stick so around. Much. Dan, I'll be right back with the next session. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks, all. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.